Welcome back, listeners. It is Monday, which means we have a new episode for you today. I'm Andy Alexander, and joining me here today is... Dan Gorman from the University of Rochester. Thanks so much for joining me. Now, today, you have an interview for us where you chatted with Dr. Chris Cantwell and Dr. Christian Peterson. Can you tell us a little bit about that interview? Yes, we had a conversation about their new edited volume, Digital Humanities and Research Methods in Religious Studies, which DeGroyter published earlier this year. Um, The volume is a collection of case studies looking at not so much the nuts and bolts of digital humanities, but rather how um, digital research methods can be useful to the field of religion. So it's a spotlight on 16 or so projects that have made use of computational methods, digital publishing, and how those were beneficial to the scholars' larger research projects. That sounds really fascinating. And it seems like a really productive book, I think, for our field, because we see so much digital humanities work starting to happen in a variety of religious studies programs. So I'm really excited to hear this interview. This is the Religious Studies Project, Daniel Gorman reporting from Rochester, New York. And today I'm speaking to editors Christopher Cantwell and Christian Peterson about their new volume, Digital Humanities and Research Methods in Religious Studies from DeGreuter. Christopher Cantwell is a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and Christian Peterson is a professor at Old Dominion University. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you for joining me this morning. Thanks Thanks for having us. Tell me, first of all, what is the purpose of this book? You say in the introduction that you wanted to get people thinking about questions of ethics and what counts or not in religious studies. What was your intention in in producing this project? I'll I'll start with that one if it's okay, Chris. Um, So the, the volume that we produced is part of a larger series uh, with DeGroyter that I'm also on the editorial board for called introductions to digital humanities, religion, and the, the series more broadly. And then I think what we, we tried to do uh, more specifically is uh, encourage people to take on digital methods and digital tools to enhance the study of religion. So think about how these, these things that perhaps people are unfamiliar with or have heard about, but are unsure of, uh, their purpose or function um, to try to expose them to uh, why these methods, why these tools can help us yield new answers, think about our subjects in interesting ways. We titled our introduction, uh, Digital Humanities and Religious Studies, a why to guide, because uh, I, I think this gets at really the core of what we were hoping to do is not necessarily show people how to use uh, this digital tool or, um, you know, go through the ins and outs of a particular method, but rather help people think about why digital tools and digital methods might enhance their work. Um, And we, we tried to do that in our volume by um, letting people kind of get into the nitty gritty of, uh, case studies, examples of uh, digital humanist work in religion that we thought was really great. So that was that was kind of how we tackled it in our volume. And some of the other volumes do do this differently. Some of them do get into a little bit more of the uh, the ins and outs of a of a how to. Um, 
but we were trying to be more, um, I mean, it sounds corny, uh, inspirational or motivational in the sense that perhaps you've heard about digital humanities. Uh, maybe you're a little curious. Um, here, here are some uh, ways that people have done this successfully that you can also perhaps be inspired by. Yeah, and if I could, if I could build on what Christian was saying, I think the the title of our introduction is key. And I think another thing that's helpful to think about the the nature of the structure of the book is to put it within sort of the longer um, history of digital humanities more broadly, um, because you know digital scholarship has been around for you know going on twenty years now, um, but a lot of other fields were sort of quicker to adapt it than I would say the study of religion might have been. Um, so, you know, the American Historical Association and the Modern Language Association in particular were early advocates for the peer review of digital scholarship, counting it in 10-year promotion, um, hosting workshops. And so, you know, you know, Christian and I, as sort of, you know, folks who circle within the, the study of religion, sort of were wondering why these conversations weren't happening in our circles as well. And so we saw this as hopefully serving as a, a catalyst. Um, and, you know, and thankfully, by the time it came out as the table of content show, there there is a kind of a robust ecology of digital scholarship in the study of religion right now. Yeah, one thing I was thinking about, particularly in the discussions of projects that deal with space and mapping religion, um, that in particular seems to be a growth area. Projects like Arch City Religion, um, Boston's Hidden Religious Spaces, um, that that one in particular seems particularly salient for people. Do you, what are your thoughts on that? Why do you think so many people are interested in the potential of digital mapping technology for religion? I mean, for me, I'll I'll venture a guess. Um, I mean, I think there are ways in which we are inhabiting a spatial turn right now, right? Like we all have a global map on our smartphone or tablet that we didn't have, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago. And so I think we just recognize our relationship to space um, socially in ways that we perhaps hadn't before. Um, but I but I think another thing that's that's important to consider is also just the ease and access to that kind of software, right? That there's a growing suite of tools that allows for, you know, folks who didn't get a who didn't major in computer science or 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 know a coding language can now do this kind of work, which is why we think it's important to you know, call attention to the availability of these. Um, you know, I think, you know, the Boston project you mentioned um, is done in part with undergraduate students. So it becomes a pedagogical school tool as much as it's a, a research tool. And that's, I think, one of the real powers of digital scholarship is that it blurs the boundaries um, and where, you know, scholars in the study of religion used to have these discrete fields of teaching and research and service. Um, you know, digital scholarship allows those things to do be all things at once. Yeah. And I, I that last point I think is, uh, uh, is very helpful. Um, in thinking about, um, two, two projects that we highlight in the book. Um, one is led by Caleb Elfenbein, uh, the, uh, on mapping Islamophobia. And this project, part of what, what I think the mapping part of it uh, helped people understand was the, the real magnitude of this. Uh, it helped kind of communicate the data that he was collecting in uh, really powerful ways that perhaps writing, you know, there's been, oh, you know, hundreds of anti-Muslim, uh, you know, sentiment or hate acts or these kind of things. It just kind of hits in a different way. Uh, but this was a project that he worked on with uh, many of his students at Grinnell. 
And um, so some of his students, uh, Farah Bakari and Julia Schaefer, they, they've continued with this work in other realms as they've, they've uh, gone on to graduate school. Um, the other project that kind of uh, incorporates both this model uh, was the one on China, uh, which was led by Feng Gangyang. And at the time, uh, Jonathan Pettit, who's now a professor at uh, the University of Hawaii, um, they, they were collaborating as graduate student and professor uh, to kind of map uh, religious institutions in China. Um, so I, I think I think it's a good point because this is one of the things we try to point out in the introduction is that one of the great things about uh, digital humanities work is this kind of collaborative nature. It really, it really is most successful when you have lots of people involved, and that 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 you know means lots of researchers. So that could be graduate students, even undergrads, and professors, of course. Uh, but then also, um, you know, people can use a Google Map to to do a digital project. Uh, but you can also then collaborate with people who are experts in the technology th themselves. So a lot of projects that we highlight in the book are working with uh, librarians, archivists, uh, computer scientists, along with humanities scholars. And this is where I think some of the, the really exciting work is gonna happen is when you get these, these kind of collectives of folks that are bringing their various expertise into a single mm -hmm. project and, and, and really kind of uh, making it come together in a unique way. Yeah, I've experienced that in my own work. I mean, here at the University of Rochester, there's a number of digital humanities projects, and they do tend to be all hands on deck. Um, you know, like, I know how to bumble around on WordPress, and I made some HTML <laughs> once, but you know, I can't, I can't do the more heavy lifting of database stuff. But if there's somebody over in CS, particularly, you know, an undergrad who needs like a co-op credit or something, um, there's a way that it can, you know, be mutually advantageous. I think that's, I think that team effort is very interesting. Um, which then ties into another point in your introduction where you mentioned thinking about the ethics of the project, how to, or, or whatever project you're building, how to structure it. Um, there's the matter of credit, making sure everyone gets adequate credit. And sometimes you wind up with a humanities project that looks more like a science paper if there's, you know, 30 contributors listed. Um, can you speak a little bit about this issue of credits and making religious studies digital work count towards your career? Yeah, sure. I could I could venture a start to this conversation, which should have many voices. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a for a for a long time. I think the humanities um, has conflated with has conflated what scholarship looks like with what the printed word looks like, um, and so that scholar, you know, knowledge can only look like the printed word. Um, and what we've seen with the rise of new media is, of course, we now have, you know, a plethora of genres of knowledge production. Um, and there is, it has been, um, it's, it's closing, thankfully, but a disconnect um, between sort of what counts and what's produced. And, you know, one of the things I think the, the, the project and the volume does is by laying out the panoply of different kinds of scholarly work that people are doing and, and identifying them and calling them scholarship is a way of, I think, normalizing, you know, uh, recognizing and accounting these kinds of work um, in the field. 
Uh, because oftentimes they're celebrated. Um, you know, projects can be award-winning, projects can get grant funding, and then the sort of last hurdle is when, you know, where do they fit within individuals' 10-year portfolios? Do they go in the teaching side? Do they go in the research side? Do they go in the service side? When in fact, they go in all three. And so how to sort of measure the weight um, of that has been been the challenge, which is why I was incredibly grateful to, to work with, with Christian, again, as well as a number of other scholars with the American Academy of Religion and drafting guidelines for, for counting digital scholarship in promotion and tenure files, um, which, you know, um, I have since heard from multiple people, um, folks have celebrated as being the most comprehensive and incisive and helpful sort of guides for scholars looking to have that work count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a good point, especially for grad students who, I mean, historically feel like can feel like and you know, uncredited labor at points. And so I think the the transparency of the Internet, I think it's cool to actually ex- expose some of the inner workings of, you know, a big research project and that there are multiple cooks in the kitchen. One other thing um, that I want to just add is uh, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword in a way um, doing this type of work in, in particular uh, institutional context. So, you know, COVID I think has magnified the uh, instability of uh, the academic job market, um, which was already pretty terrible. Um, So, Perhaps, perhaps digital humanities is a way to kind of think about scholarship outside of the traditional uh, ways we thought about what what is a postgraduate career look like. Um, and Chris is actually a great example of this. He's he's done lots of really cool stuff, uh, you know, both being a, a traditional professor in a sense, but also being a public historian in in, in many contexts. Um, where his work is is getting many more eyes than uh, any, anything that I've done. Um, so the, there is that, which I think is exciting. It's an exciting opportunity about digital humanities work. Um, but if, if you are in a kind of more traditional context, um, this idea of does it count um, can work against you. And I, I think this can be... Uh, you know, also related to the issues of like pub- public scholarship more generally. Um, so, you know, even doing doing podcasts like this, uh, you know, doing public writing, um, sometimes peers uh, don't see this as kind of, you know, quote unquote, serious work. So uh, it, depending on the context, depending on your colleagues, they might not value this type of work. Um so one of the things that might happen is this almost becomes uh, like an add-on. So you need to do the peer-reviewed articles. You need to do the uh, you know university press book, and then you can also uh, do this other type of work that for for some people in your institution, if that's the context you're in, uh, they they might not value it. They look at it as um, a hobby, basically. Yeah, they look at it as a hobby. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So it's a very, uh, depending on the project, it's a, it's a very uh, labor-heavy hobby uh, and maybe not always the most fun hobby. But uh, but I think in general, it's, it's really rewarding work. Um, you know, one of the 
kind of my toe in the water of digital humanities is um, something that I put together uh, called the Women of Islamic Studies Database, which is a, a crowdsourced um, resource for trying to um, dissolve the uh, disproportionate, um, you know, gender dynamic in things like, um, you know, conference panels, edited volumes, syllabi, citations, uh, by trying to draw attention to um, scholars in Islamic studies uh, who are women and often ignored in those contexts. Um, and I mean, that might be the thing that people get most excited about, uh, that I hear the most, like, this is great, that people actually like use it. Uh, you know, when people are going on sabbatical, they'll like put it in their email signature and say, if you're looking for someone to do something, check this database. So, uh, it's, it can be really, really rewarding work, uh, on other levels, even though it might not be rewarded in some sort of institutional way in terms of tenure promotion or those kind of things, if, if that's the context you're working in. Yeah, if I could, if I could continue to add to this conversation, because I, I do think it's really important. Um, cause I think, you know, Christian's absolutely right. Um, and I think part of what he's saying is an eternal truth that one has to be really thoughtful um, and strategic about the kind of research they do and what forms that research takes. I don't, I don't think that's ever changed. Like that's been true of scholars and academics for a century. Um, to your point, Dan, I, I think what's really true is that, you know, as you said earlier, like we're all digital humanists now, right? Like we are conducting this interview over Zoom um, when we start a research project, we usually turn to Google and then our university catalogs, right? Like there are multiple ways in which our work has become mediated by digital technology. And even if you don't see yourself learning text mining, GIS software, natural language processing, those kind of things, like you are a digital humanist, right? Unless you are writing in pen and pencil and only looking at material artifacts, you are your work is mediated by digital culture. And being aware of that, is vital no matter where you end up. Um, and so I think some familiarity with, uh, it's incumbent upon everyone, I think, to be to gain some familiarity with the ways in which, you know, um, knowledge about religion is produced and shared um, and critiqued today. Um, and that, you know, regardless of where you find yourself. Um, and then to one other point, a point, I think, again, another turn to what um, Christian said, which again, I totally agree with is, in in my experience, you you know you mentioned the the graduate student experience, um, Dan, and I think what's really true is that oftentimes there's a difference between what will help you get a job and what will help you keep a job, right? So, um, I was in the museum world for a long time, and a lot of the interest I received from academic appointments was based on my museum work. Um, now that I've returned to the academy, I have had to greatly scale down the amount of digital work I've done in order to produce the kind of scholarly products that look recognizable to my peers. And again, that's a that's a strategy, that's a choice, that's a that's a method that that's going to be true in any environment. Yeah, it, it, well it reminds me also that with this book um you're mapping the terrain as you say on page 9 of the introduction. Nice shout out to Jonathan Z Smith there. Um but also, 
you're making an argument for why the work matters. And I think that has to be inherently political because of the questions it poses about what counts as traditional work, who counts, whose name is above the byline. Um, so I think in a way, digital studies has to be political because it involves, you know, changing what the normal scholarly output looks like. Yeah. And I'll say this is, this is one of the things I get most excited about in, you know, integrating digital methods into the study of religion is it allows sort of two things that, that I think really animate my own work. Um, one, it oftentimes allows our scholarship to look like the communities and people that we study, right? So the, an example I really think about that that's not in the volume, actually, but it comes to mind is the American Religious Sounds Project, um, which looks at is building an archive of the sonic landscape of American religion, as that's the way in which people often encounter it, right? Like, I mean, if we lose the the depth of the texture in that um and, and just so, you know, in, in only allowing print. Secondly, the other thing I really, um, that I feel really drawn to is the ways in which digital scholarship allows us to make the communities and people we study to be partners in the production of knowledge rather than our objects of study, right? And so this is something that I do here at the, in Milwaukee is I maintain a project called Gathering Places where a team of students and I partner with places of worship um, throughout the city and work with them to write their history, um, their, the history of their institution or, the, or their community in Milwaukee, and then we map that. So we're trying to build a living spatial archive of, of religious diversity in Milwaukee. And the digital medium um, has really brawn, drawn a lot of communities in. Um, in that it allows them to say, oh, hey, we can have our story showcased. We have recordings of, you know, activities of significance. We have scans of old photos that can be shared with the world, you know, and with future generations of our own community. Um, and so that kind of, I mean, you're right, it is intrinsically political and it allows you um, to draw out those. I mean, you know, Christian was talking earlier about how some of the projects in the book have used space to make visible what's invisible, right? By sort of highlighting flashpoints and heat points and things like that. And what I have found really powerful in mapping is the way it creates a kind of visual level playing field, right? That everybody occupies a space and it makes the religious diversity of Milwaukee it creates a, a kind of you know equity and parity that that oftentimes doesn't get seen in the in you know out in the wider culture. One other thing that comes to mind is a comment from Marcus Bingenheimer's chapter on digital tools for Buddhist studies. Um, he writes that the, there's a challenge of citing digital editions is that um, if you're producing new content for the web. And so this, this, I think, could be true, whether it's, again, the mapping collection you're producing or a new digital edition of a text, is that it only exists in a digital format, typically. And then trying to figure out a, a systematic way to cite that and make that, you know, again, appear in other people's scholarship. You also say in your introduction, there's the matter of sustainability, which I think goes right hand in hand with citing something, making sure that it's going to stick around long enough that it can be cited. Um, what do you think are some of the challenges of citing and preserving digital scholarship to make sure it will be there, you know, as a footnotable resource? for people 10 years, 15 years from now? There's, I think, a few intersecting things happening in your, your question here. Um, 
And yeah, Marcus's essay shows how these things change and are malleable over time uh, very clearly. Um, some of the other other uh, essays do this as well. Um, but for, for us, I think what we were trying to communicate to people who might think about doing this is when you're thinking about a project, you, you do have to think about it in a different way in the sense that traditional scholarship, you think, okay, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to do the research. I'm going to write it up. I'm going to get it peer reviewed and then it's published and then it's done. And uh, most uh, DH projects don't do that, uh, or, or maybe not most of them, but uh, uh, many of them are ongoing. Um, and even if they have kind of an end of life um, in terms of when you're updating and and these kind of things, you do have to think about um, how is this going to work in a year, in five years, or beyond that. Um, and of course, we all know how things change on the internet very quickly. Um, but these, these, I think, go hand in hand. So you, you have to think about your project as ongoing work um, and one that you're returning to in new ways. And, and this idea of collaboration also helps that uh, where you get new energy, perhaps, or new perspectives. Um, and then thinking about uh, how are we going to uh, preserve this? Um, so that might require funding for, for some projects. So some of the larger projects that are highlighted in the book. Um, you know, have institutional funding from, you know, Ivy League universities. Uh, others have uh, large grants from the NEH. Um, but some of them were, uh, you know, kind of do-it-yourself type projects as well. And when you're thinking about sustainability, um, you don't necessarily need to have the, the big bank uh, behind it. Um, but you do have to think about ways of keeping that project moving forward, um, that way people can access it. And then hopefully, um, you know, people will start to, um, you know, cite it and acknowledge it in ways that, that uh, you know, are discussing the way that, that the project might be challenging uh, or disrupting kind of traditional norms, uh, norms in, that, in that subject. Yeah, I think, I think to that point as well, um, you know, I, I think sustainability is is absolutely key, and there needs to be at the start of a project a conversation about how it's going to be sustainable. Um, but another thing I think it's important to emphasize is, you know, in conversations I've had with folks about the undertaking of digital work, is some folks are hesitant because their understanding of what a digital project is is just a lifetime of curation, right? Like I launched this project, and now I've got to maintain that project for the rest of my life. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. In the same way, there are multiple genres of writing from, you know, the monograph to the article to the op-ed and the essay and things like that, that these digital projects can take on a lot of different forms. And, and one of the things we really try to showcase in the book is the different levels of commitment and scale one could take on with digital scholarship. And then the questions of sustainability that go along with that, right? So I think about something like, you know, Heidi Campbell's work in building um, the the network for new media, religion, and digital culture studies out at um, Texas A and M, which is a long term, basically building a social network for scholars, is what Heidi is trying to do, and that requires you know ongoing maintenance and planning. Um, but then, by contrast, we have another essay by Abhishek Kumar from Hamilton College, which is seeking out to map, um, create three D renderings of Hindu temples in India. 
And then once those maps are made, they're going to be teaching tools and research tools, but, you know, he's not interested in then, you know, continually iteratively adding to this building upon it. He has a, a, a kind of a more contained project in mind, and they're both equally valuable in, in my opinion. This, this hits home for me because I worked on a project called Digitizing Rochester's Religions, which actually sounds a good bit like your Gathering Spaces project, Christopher. Um, you know, pairing with local institutions, preserving their documents, sharing their story. Um, but when the PI moved to a new university, so no longer access to the funds, and then I, I was able to use some professional funds to sort of dump everything we had so far on the internet. <laughs> but um, but I'm still thinking about how to preserve it. I mean, right now I can keep it up on my my university digital scholarship platform account. But when I graduate, that's going to be sunsetted. And I understand the university doesn't want to save 80 gigabytes or whatever of this stuff forever. Um, so when that happens, I'm going to have to figure out where to stow it. Um, and I have tried saving pages in the Internet Archive, but the Internet Archive doesn't capture everything, doesn't capture videos. Maps can be very clunky if they even are captured at all. So, yeah, it's it, it's it's an ongoing issue. I mean, I, I mean, I'm just very glad to work on the project and, I, you know, I learned a lot. but. Um, but now I kind of feel like, and also because it was community embedded, like I owe something to the people, you know, who contributed and shared their, you know, literally opened their closets full of old documents. And, you know, if there is a responsibility yeah. that comes with it, you're like the custodian of these materials. And and sometimes the answer to those questions don't have to be individual, but they can be institutional and organizational, right? So that, um, you know, I, I have found oftentimes the most helpful patrons in the production of scholarship are university libraries. Like they, mm-hmm. they, in my opinion, are the future of the university, that they are going to serve the role as publisher, as repository, as producer of knowledge um, as, in ways they hadn't before because of the rise of digital media. But also, you know, we can see organizations that have stood up, um, stepped into the breach to serve as a resource for, for individuals doing digital work. So um, the rise of institutional repositories, right? The Modern Language Association maintains an institutional repository where members can store scholarly work if they don't have the funding um, at their local smaller institutions. So, the, you know, there are ways in which people can, are doing this work, can envision um, an ecology and an architecture that works to promote it. Um, and that's one of the things that we we hope comes out of this project is, you know, greater interest and awareness in doing something like that. Yeah, and just to add on to uh, or kind of give a sneak peek um, off of Chris's comment, the, the one of the forthcoming volumes we have in the uh, Degorgia series is uh, Digital Humanities and Libraries and Archives in Religious Studies, which is uh, edited by Clifford Anderson, who is uh, you know one of the leaders in this uh, this field. So um, that's going to show uh, you know the role of archivists, librarians, and and how they kind of intersect with us as scholars and researchers as well. So, so I think one one note on which to end the um, what end this conversation. I noticed so one of the contributors to your volume is Heidi Campbell, who in 2013 edited the volume um, Digital Religion: Understanding Religious Practice in New Media Worlds. And it was interesting thinking about that book, uh, Campbell's book, in comparison to yours, because Campbell was talking about religious life on the internet. This book is about using the internet to study religious life, whether or not it's on the internet or not. Um, Do you think digital humanities, I mean, most of the volumes in this book are talking, or excuse me, most of the essays in this book are talking about using the internet to study 
offline religious activity. Do you think there is a way that we can wind up fully digital here, you know, using digital humanities tools to study things that happen just on the internet where it's this closed, closed ecosystem of, you know, electronic activity? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, great scholarship um, that's looking at digital communities, digital religion. Um, and the, I, I, for me, one of the things that's kind of um, embedded in your question uh, is, you know, we don't we don't try to define very clearly what digital humanities is. Uh, in the volume, I don't think either of us would try to do that now either. Um, in kind of scholarship on digital humanities more broadly, that that's a con- contested question. And uh, so for some people, studying digital religions through a humanities perspective is digital humanities enough. Uh, for others, they might say, well, you need to use digital tools and digital methods to think about religion, whether it be online or uh, off, uh, to qualify as digital humanities. So I'm not one to to play police. Uh, So I I think both of those approaches are are valid and useful. Um, But there's certainly lots of great scholarship on things like, uh, you know, digital ethnography and uh, Facebook groups or things like that. Um, there's a lot of great scholarship on, uh, you know, online ritual. Um, so there's lots of ways to kind of have, uh, digital humanities and digital religion intersect in really interesting ways, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's an interesting comparison. Um, I mean, from my, my perspective, I would see these two volumes as being, um, interlocutors, right? Or maybe either sides of a spectrum where, you know, our focus really was on research methods, right? And by the focus on method, you're going to be looking at the back end of the production of a product. Um, whereas Heidi's volume is, is the scholarly product that's produced, right? So it is the actual ethnography. Um, but, you know, I mean, to, to Christian's point as well, I mean, I have a similarly expansive definition of this work whereby, you know, to me, the digital humanities is is using digital technology to advance the work of the humanities or the application of humanistic theory to digital technology. And it's all, to me, a part of the same engagement with this digital mediated moment we now live in. Um, back to your original point about, you know, we're all digital humanists now, and it's it's really just kind of up to everybody to 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 find their place within it. Well, Thank you very much for your time. The book is Digital Humanities and Research Methods in Religious Studies, out now. And assuming these vaccines hold up, may we all have a little bit more of analog studies in our lives. Yes, and and be able to meet together. Thanks. Yes. Yes. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Dan, for this great interview. And thanks so much to Chris Cantwell and Christian Peterson for taking the time to chat with us today. This has been a very fascinating discussion about the relevance of digital humanities research methods in the academic study of religion. And I think, as it's clear from today's episode, there are a number of ways that scholars can incorporate digital methods into the classroom and that students can engage in digital projects as part of a religious studies 
course or degree. Thanks so, so much to our wonderful listeners for tuning in today. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Please head over to Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to let us know what you thought. Ask your questions. All of our folks today are on social media, and I'm sure they would be more than happy to continue the conversation there. Also head over to our website at religiousstudiesproject.com for more information about this episode and a transcript of this episode as well. As we're rolling into this midpoint of the semester, we're all probably making a few extra cups of coffee a day, whether it's grading or writing midterms, participating in service work. And I just want to highlight the great work of this team here at the RSP who tackle a variety of tasks in addition to their other work. So we appreciate any support that you can give, whether it's a one-time donation at PayPal or signing up for a monthly donation of as little as $1 at patreon.com slash project RS. That donation goes a long way in supporting the Religious Studies Project. We also have Amazon affiliate links. So when you're stocking up on coffee pods, please use our Amazon affiliate links. It won't change the price of your purchase, but a small portion of that will be donated to us here at the RSP. So think of it as just giving us a cup of coffee as well. And until next time, all that's left to say is thanks Thanks for for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartasius. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.